Does glucose handling in the brain decline with age? And if so, does this serve as a rationale to supplement with MCT oil to prevent cognitive decline? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. All right, so the winning question is from John Needham, which came in with 27 votes. And John said, hi, Chris, thank you for deep, for, well, my summary of this question, I'll read it in full, but my summary of this question is, does glucose handling in the brain decline with age? And if so, does this serve as a rationale to supplement with MCT oil to prevent cognitive decline? In more detail, John's question was, number one, does the brain find it more difficult to use glucose as a fuel as it ages? Number two, plates of glucose more difficult to detox in the brain than the metabolites of ketones? I believe I read this, but can't find the reference. Then he lists a study that stated, this is the longest duration MCT Alzheimer's disease study to date. 80% had stabilization or improvement in cognition and better response with nine months continual MCT oil. Three different tests of cognition were used. However, the study only involved 20 people. I think you will say it is hopelessly underpowered to draw any conclusions. And then John cites another study that was conducted on 46 APOE4 negative mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease patients and stated, MCT had positive effects on cognitive ability in mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease patients with who did not have APOE4. These effects of MCT might be related to the metabolism of lysophosphatidylcholine, oleic acid, linoleic acid, palmitic acid, in addition to the ketogenic effect. I understand that APOE4 is the strongest risk factor gene for Alzheimer's disease, although inheriting APOE4 does not mean a person will definitely develop the disease. I'm in my early 60s. I agree with your comments last month on food first approach and cook whole foods every day, but I can't help wondering, number three, might adding some MCT oil to my diet each day be a preventative strategy against cognitive decline without risking harm? Do you agree that MCT oil, a fractionated part of coconut oil, is a food or is it too highly processed, meaning too highly processed to qualify as a food? So his three questions are, number one, does the brain find it more difficult to use glucose as, as a fuel as it ages? Number two, are the metabolites of glucose more difficult to detox in the brain than the metabolites of ketones? I read this. Well, that's the question. Number three is, might adding some MCT oil to my diet each day be a preventative strategy against cognitive decline without risking harm? And do I agree that MCT oil would qualify as a food or is it too fractionated of a of a part of a food to qualify as a food in what I would call a food first approach. Um, so again, my my very broad overview summary of this is, does glucose handling in the brain decline with age? Handling can mean using it as a fuel or just handling its, its byproducts safely. Excuse me. And if so, does, does that provide a rationale to supplement with MCT oil to prevent cognitive decline? So here is my answer. And the, the short answer is that energy metabolism in general declines across the body with aging, but energy metabolism seems to stay healthy enough in the brain in people who do not experience cognitive decline, while cognitive decline does appear to be driven by decreases in brain energy metabolism 
I don't think it's best to describe these as a specific decrease in glucose handling. I do think that MCT oil can be modestly beneficial and a ketogenic diet can probably be somewhat more beneficial in people who have cognitive decline from any type as a result of the deficits in energy metabolism. But I don't think there's good evidence that any of these act as a preventative. And for prevention, I believe we should focus on aerobic fitness, nutrients required for healthy energy metabolism and antioxidant defense, and maintaining metabolic health with healthy body composition and a healthy physical activity routine that includes the proper spread of a portfolio of different types of exercise and the nutrition needed to sustain healthy energy metabolism and antioxidant defense. That's my short answer. So for a longer answer, I'll go into a little bit of background. So the brain constitutes 2% of the body's weight, but 20% of its energy demand. Around two-thirds of that energy demand is to fuel the activities of neurons. And generally, on a mixed diet, someone's burning 120 grams of glucose per day in the brain. And most of the brain's energy demands are met by glucose. Very little is met from fatty acids. Some is met from protein metabolism. And on a ketogenic diet, you can switch 75% of the glucose that you burn in the brain per day to ketones, but you can never get rid of the last 25%. And the general demands are filled in such a way that there is a partnership between neurons and cells that help neurons and wrap around them called astrocytes, where the astrocytes will burn glucose to make lactate in anaerobic glycolysis. And the ATP demand of the astrocytes will be largely met by the ATP generated in anaerobic glycolysis. But then the lactate will be shuttled to the neuron and the primary fuel of the neuron is lactate which is completely combusted for energy in the mitochondria. The anaerobic glycolysis occurs in the cytosol, which is the main liquid of the cell that is outside the mitochondria and the other organelles. If each organelle, such as the mitochondria, the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi, et cetera, if you, can, if you imagine those as, a room, as rooms in the house of the cell, the cytosol would be the hallway that connects all the rooms. So anaerobic glycolysis is occurring in the cytosol of the astrocyte to generate ATP for the astrocyte. And then the lactate that is made from that process is shuttled to the neuron. The, neur the lactate will go into the, the neuron's mitochondria and be completely combusted for energy. All complete combustion of any fuel for energy occurs in the mitochondria, the so-called powerhouse of the cell. And... This will be the main fuel source of the neuron. So when we talk about 120 grams of glucose being burned in the brain per day, we really are talking not about glucose being the fuel for the neuron. We're talking about lactate 
being the fuel for the neuron. That 120 grams of glucose per day is largely generating a little bit of ATP for astrocytes and a lot of ATP for neurons after it's converted to two molecules of lactate by the astrocyte and shuttled into the neuron for complete combustion in its mitochondria. Right, so the, the normal food of neurons is lactate, and lactate can be replaced by ketones on a ketogenic diet. But you can't get rid of the, as I said before, you can on a ketogenic diet, you can get rid of 75% of the brain's energy demand. You can't get rid of the last 25% in part because glucose does other things besides just act as a fuel for ATP in anaerobic glycolysis in the astrocyte. It's also necessary for the production of NADPH for antioxidant defense in the pentose phosphate pathway. And it also is able to supply um, citric acid cycle intermediates in a process called anaplerosis, which means the filling up of the citric acid cycle, which if you're not familiar with biochemistry, I would just think of the citric acid cycle and the respiratory chain together as the metabolic fire in which all fuel is completely combusted for energy. So glucose is able to stoke the flames or act as kindling wood to light the fire of metabolism in a way that ketones can't and fats can't. And so on a ketogenic diet, when you get rid of 75% of your glucose demand, which is really lactate fueling the neuron, you're fueling the neuron with the ketones instead of the lactate, but you can't get rid of the 25% of glucose demand because you still need it for antioxidant defense and you still need it to stoke the flames of metabolism. Okay, so... There's a lot of controversy over what contributes to cognitive decline. But if we look at consensus, or there's never any true consensus, but the broad approximate consensus on causes that underlie cognitive decline in general across the board from cognitive decline in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mild cognitive impairment, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, just generally across the board, consensus causes of cognitive decline in aging include three basic causes, reduced energy metabolism, excitotoxicity, where glutamate might ordinarily stimulate a neuron to turn it on, but if it never stops turning it on, then it just kills the neuron from the excess demand for excitation. So reduced energy metabolism, excitotoxicity, and oxidative damage. Now, if you consider these three, and this is me interjecting my comment on top of the consensus from reviews. If you consider these three, antioxidant defense and clearance of excitatory neurotransmitters are both energy dependent. In the case of antioxidant defense, you need ATP to synthesize glutathione. You need the pentose phosphate pathway, which is part of energy metabolism, to supply electrons from glucose up the chain to niacin in the form of NADPH, which carries them to riboflavin in the form of FAD as a prosthetic group of glutathione reductase, which is the enzymatic link between the antioxidant system and the system of energy metabolism, which then passes it on to glutathione, which passes it on to vitamin C, which passes it on to vitamin E. So all aspects of antioxidant defense 
are dependent on the system of energy metabolism. Then the clearance, the, the complete regulation of all neurotransmitters, both their release and their clearance is all completely dependent on energy metabolism. And this is the reason is that everything the neuron does from getting excited to getting inhibited to transmitting a signal down an axon to releasing a synaptic, uh, to releasing a neurotransmitter from the synaptic vesicles to transmitting the impulse of that neurotransmitter to the next neuron and to clearing that neurotransmitter back into the previous neuron so that it does not keep exciting that downstream neuron and cause excitotoxicity. All of that is dependent on the flux of ions across membranes. And the only reason the ions are in any distribution in the first place so that they can flux to, to transmit their signals is that energy has been used to actively pump them across the membrane to keep them in one place. So, So both, you know, if you think about energy metabolism, excitotoxicity, and oxidative damage, these three are so interlinked because antioxidant defense and and defense against excitotoxicity are both completely and totally dependent on energy metabolism. On the other hand, conversely, one of the reasons that mitochondria that mitochondrial dysfunction is a universal characteristic of aging is that mitochondria accumulate the results of oxidative and nitrative damage. And this is associated with declines in glutathione with age and declines in antioxidant enzymes with age. And so the loss of energy metabolism is driven by the loss of antioxidant defense but that means that there is a vicious cycle between the loss of antioxidant defense and the loss of energy metabolism. So you can't just say that energy metabolism is the foundation. In a sense, energy metabolism and antioxidant defense are so inextricably linked that antioxidant defense is what allows you to burn energy cleanly without damage to the mitochondria, and energy metabolism is what allows you to defend against oxidants that a loss of either one of these will cause a loss of the other and healing from that loss will require adequate attention to both of these things in tandem. If anything, excitotoxicity should be seen as a result of the loss of energy metabolism, which in turn cannot be distinguished between fundamental loss of energy metabolism in the sense of losing nutrients involved or loss of energy metabolism because of loss of antioxidant defense and damage to mitochondria. All right. Now, based on results in skeletal muscle, which doesn't necessarily reflect exactly what's in the brain, but this fact is cited in recent reviews of energy metabolism in the brain and aging because it's thought to offer some insight into what might be going on. And so those results show that in skeletal muscle, mitochondrial density declines by 8% per decade, beginning at least as early as the 20s. And this is strongly correlated with aerobic fitness and glucose tolerance. Now, I would point out here that Inigo San Milan's research and 
I haven't read his research, but I've listened to numerous interviews he's done, including two with Peter Atia, covers how zone two cardio training, which is steady state cardio at the tempo that will cause you to still be able to talk throughout the course of an hour continuously, but to feel slightly out of breath by doing it and to feel that it's annoying such that if you were on the phone with someone, they would be able to tell that you're exercising just by listening to the way you're breathing while you're talking. Although it's more accurate to to determine zone two with a lactate meter, where if you go up in your speed or really your output uh, and you plot your lactate, you'll see two inflections in lactate where the think we're going this way. So you see two inflections in lactate where the first inflection, uh, where where the slope of the lactate line goes uh, uh, changes to a faster increase is the beginning of zone two. And the next inflection point is the beginning of zone three. And so between those two inflection points is where your zone two cardio training is, if you want to be precise about it from a metabolic standpoint. So I would point out that His research is all about how you can prevent the decline in mitochondrial impairment by doing zone two cardio training because zone two cardio training is the most effective way to stimulate mitochondrial production and mitochondrial health with mitochondrial production being your best defense against the age-related decline in mitochondrial density. So I would point that out. But that said... I think there are some reasons to question whether a general mitochondrial decline is the primary driver of the dysfunction in energy metabolism that underlies why some people get cognitive impairment in as they um as they age and some people don't. So first of all, right off the bat, this is a universal I, I mean it's a universal trend with a lot of variation around it, right? So it's just sort of like when bone mass declines from age 25 or 30, depending on your sex, not everyone at age 50 has the same bone mass. Some people have a better bone mass at age 50 than other people do at age 25. But it's the trend for everyone that it's declining at some rate after the peak. And for mitochondrial density, the pe- the peak appears to be at like 18 to 20 years old, <laughs> And so, you know, one so one strong argument against that being the primary driver of why some people get cognitive decline as they age and some people don't is that, and this is me speaking, not not the research reviews. Um, this is my opinion, is that cognitive decline doesn't happen starting in your 20s. So if if um if actually if I just look at the review that that I got from that cited this. So this is this review is characteristics of neural network changes in normal aging and early dementia by Watanabe et al. from 2021. These are the people who cited this decline in mitochondrial density as a as a reason for the decline in energy metabolism in the brain in aging, even though it's in skeletal muscle. But you know, if you just open up their first paragraph, they say that motor function, memory, calculation, and intuition peak at around 20 years of age, followed by a gradual decline, while concentration and emotional cognition peak at around age 45, and comprehension, vocabulary, and judgment peak at around 
age 60. And if you if you go on to read this article, most of this stuff about normal aging is not about a decline in energy metabolism. It's about a shift in the way that the neural networks are maintained. And so you have these you have these peaks that are way after the, the decline in mitochondrial density starts that are really driven by just rearrangements in neural networks where emotion cogni- uh, concentration and emotional cognition peak at age 45, comprehension, vocabulary, and judgment peak at around 60. These obviously aren't driven by processes that started at age 18. So I don't think the decline in mitochondrial density is driving them. Um, then also, there's um, there are people that, despite these processes universally peaking at these ages, there are people who age to age 80 and just have, um, these are called super agers. So they, they say in a study that looked at some changes in the brain among cognitively normal young adults, cognitively normal older adults, and quote-unquote super-agers aged 80 years or older whose memory test scores were equivalent to or higher than those of people aged 50 to 65 years. The statistical differences in, micro, in these various uh, brain things that they're, that they're, that they're talking about um, are basically explaining that difference. So they're looking at some metrics that I'm not concerned with here where the superagers are looking like the the young people basically and these superagers are maintaining cognitive function like a young person into age 80 despite the fact that their mitochondrial density has to have declined since age 18 given how universal of a downtrend this is so I don't think a general defect, a general decline in energy metabolism, I don't think is what's going on. Um, that's that's explaining the difference between people with healthy cognitive function at age 80 and people with more normal declines in cognitive function at age, age 80 and people with cognitive disorders such as cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's, et cetera. Now, another thing is, if we go to the animal experiments that use models of cognitive decline in order to test what's going on in them and try to make those, try to make the cognitive decline look as similar to human cognitive decline as possible within a rat or a mouse, those experiments show that three things are very protective, ketones, lactate, and insulin signaling. And insulin signaling, of course, peripherally on your in your muscles, it's going to decrease glucose. But some of these animal experiments are suggesting that insulin has direct effects on the brain that are that are protective against cognitive decline. And I mean, notably, that argues against using a ketogenic diet because it lowers insulin, although it does imply that you want to maximize insulin sensitivity because in some of these cases, they're showing that 
you can make an animal diabetic so that its insulin is deficient or its insulin signaling it's or it becomes insulin resistant and insulin is able to correct uh, those responses. That's there are some similar results in humans with glutathione status, for example, where type two diabetes makes glutathione status decline. If you just pump glucose and insulin into their blood, the glutathione status normalizes. So the cognitive decline is another feature in diabetes where insulin signaling is a protective agent. And with insulin resistance, the problem is not that your insulin's high, it's that you're insulin resistant. So you're losing insulin signaling in the brain. Now, to me, I like to find simple explanations that can be parsimonious, that can be, and I, biology, biology is very complex, but if we're trying to reduce something into an action, you know, an action item, like the question, should I supplement with MCT oil? I'm trying to find the simplest explanations that have the greatest explanatory power. So when I see that ketones, lactate, in the, and insulin signaling are all equally protective, this says to me that it's not about fat or carbohydrate because yes, ketones come from fat, but lactate and insulin are carbohydrate dominant, dominant things. Lactate is a product of glucose in the brain that fuels neurons. Insulin is something secreted by the pancreas, not entirely, but largely in response to glucose and has its largest effects on glucose handling. So one of the things that insulin does that is not well recognized, but that I've covered in, in the energy metabolism class that MasterPass members have access to under courses in the menu, is insulin stimulates glycolysis. And so one of the interesting features that happen in senescent or end stage about to die from aging astrocytes in the brain is that they shift from anaerobic glycolysis to oxidative phosphorylation, meaning instead of burning glucose to make ATP for themselves, turn it into lactate and give the lactate to neurons to burn as their primary fuel, they're basically hogging the glucose to themselves and completely combusting it for energy. And so it's not that glucose metabolism is disappearing in the brain, it's that now the neurons are suffering because they're not being given their protective lactate in the same quantity, whereas the astrocytes are trying to help themselves survive by burning the glucose completely for energy. And so the, the glucose handling is all going to the astrocyte. The neurons are being deprived of lactate and whole body glucose metabolism is, of course, going down because you burn through way more glucose if you make ATP quickly from it in the astrocyte and fuel the neurons with lactate, because if you don't fuel the neurons with lactate, their lactate consumption goes down. And so now it's just the astrocytes hogging the energy and they burn a minority of the energy. So that, so that has to, mathematically, glucose metabolism as a whole has to go down. But if you look at these studies that show that glucose transporters are decreasing, I don't think that's causing glucose metabolism to go down. I think the astrocytes to not giving lactate to the neurons is making the total amount of glucose burned go down, which means glucose is accumulating in the brain, which means that transport across the glucose transporters is going to go down. 
or the glucose transporters are going, their expression is going to be decreased because the brain just doesn't have the demand for glucose because the neurons are not burning as much lactate because they're not being given lactate. So why would ketones, lactate, and insulin all solve that same problem? Well, I think it's simple. If you give ketones to the brain, it goes straight to the neuron and can be burned in the mitochondria without having to go through the astrocyte. If you give lactate to the brain, it can go straight to the neurons, be burned in the mitochondria without having to go to the astrocyte. If you give insulin to the brain, you're going to stimulate glycolysis. And so presumably, you're also going to help these... I don't know this for a fact, but I would think that by stimulating glycolysis across the board, you would you would start to remediate this shift in energy metabolism in the astrocytes and make them engage more in anaerobic glycolysis and reinstitute this provision of lactate to the neurons. But regardless, if you give insulin to the neuron, it's probably going to increase the neuron's own ability to burn glucose for, uh, for in glycolysis to generate its own lactate to burn the lactate for energy. So I believe that glucose... Uh, excuse me, ketones, lactate, and insulin are all protective and animal models because they're all helping get away from the decline in the astrocyte's provision of lactate to the neuron. So this really isn't about fat versus carbohydrate at all. It's really about can you rescue the neuron from the astrocytes failing to provide it with lactate? And you can do that with ketones. You can do it with lactate and you can do it with insulin. Okay, so it's probably not correct to identify either a general loss of mitochondria or a general decrease in glucose metabolism as the primary problem being solved by MCT oil. Rather, the primary problem may be that astrocytes are completely combusting glucose for their own energy as they become senescent rather than using it to provide neurons with lactate. MCT oil, its benefit is that it's ketogenic independently of insulin, and its value is that it can be included in a carbohydrate-rich diet and still generate ketones. So for example, 43 grams of MCT oil included with 300 grams of pasta and 100 grams of tomato sauce in healthy young adults raised beta-hydroxybutyrate to 0.3 millimoles per liter for at least two hours. The reason for this is that 8 and 10 carbon fatty acids do not require the carnitine shuttle to enter the mitochondria, and this shuttle is shut off by insulin. Now, John asked about the difference between coconut oil versus MCT oil. So coconut oil, its its dominant fatty acid is lauric acid. Lauric acid has 12 carbons. It does require the carnitine shuttle, so it being burned for energy is shut off by insulin. 8 and 10 carbon MCTs make up less than 15% of coconut oil. That means you would need 286 grams of coconut oil to bring beta-hydroxybutyrate to 0.3. Now, this effect is pretty modest given that ketogenic diets can raise beta-hydroxybutyrate to between 1 and 5 millimoles per liter, depending on how extreme they are. And, you know, so so you're looking at MCT oil bringing BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, the the predominant ketone that's measured in the blood, to less than a third of the bottom range of a modestly ketogenic diet and to basically 15 times less than the peak concentration reached in a strongly ketogenic diet, you would expect... uh, You would expect... 
coconut oil to be somewhere around seven times less effective than that. So if you wanted to achieve the rise to 0.3 millimoles per liter BHB on a pasta diet, you want to replicate that with coconut oil rather than requiring what I say was 40, 43 grams, you would require 286 grams of coconut oil. You're going to get massively fat on that diet and it's going to be really ineffective. So in terms of John's third question, you know, does this qualify as a food? I mean, the answer is you really cannot get this effect with coconut oil. Now you could get it with coconut oil if you're on a ketogenic diet. The coconut oil might enhance that because it's got a little bit less than 15% 8 and 10 carbon MCTs. MCT oil is going to enhance it even further than coconut oil will. So you're just you're just straight up not going to get this effect with coconut oil. It is especially in a in a carbohydrate dominant diet. You know, is MCT oil a food? You know, it's kind of in a gray area, like, but it's really not doing anything that butter isn't doing where you're fractionating the milk fat to get the component that, that comes along in butter, which is most of the fat in the milk. You know, that's a form of processing. So butter is a processed food. It's not an ultra processed food, but it's a processed food because butter is taking a form that the, the original milk doesn't take. MCT oil, I don't believe anyone was... I don't think that you can make MCT oil by like skimming the top of of a, um, of coconut oil. You know, but it's... I don't, I don't, I don't know that it's, um, you know, you can, you can, you can centrifuge the coconut oil. You should be able to separate the layers off the top of my head. I, I don't, I don't remember how MCT oil is industrially made, but you are just fractionating a substance that comes from the coconut oil. I don't think it's that much different from making butter. So, you know, so it's a, I would call it a processed food because it, it is a substance from the original food, but it's taking on a form in terms of its, its you know, oh, it, like how fluid it is, right? So you can just pour it out of a bottle. It's taking on a different physical form because it's it's more liquid it, at a at a it stays liquid at a lower temperature and it be, and it is more fluid at any given temperature. And but you know. But especially metabolically, you can say it's it's clearly has properties that coconut oil largely doesn't have. Like coconut oil does have the ketogenic effect; it's just nowhere near as strong. So I would consider MCT oil a processed food. It's more processed than butter, but it's not. I wouldn't call it, a, but it's not an ultra processed food because it's not it's not a doesn't have synthetic ingredients added to it that are uh, caused it to take on a. a um, properties that that don't exist in the food, right? It's just the isolation of properties that do exist within a food. Okay. So, you know, that said, in terms of those studies, John cited a couple of them. I'll put the references in the show notes. I'll also put the reference to a meta-analysis in the show notes. Uh, the general summary of these studies is that in people with established Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, we have 
amounts between 17 grams and 42 grams in studies that were between 30 days and not seven to nine months, uh, showing basically modest improvements in cognitive function. Uh, these seem to be pretty consistent across MCT oil versus ketogenic diets. There's not enough data to separate them. I suspect the ketogenic diet is more effective. They seem to be pretty consistent across the different types of cognitive imp impairment that have been tested. But there are no studies on the preventative effect. So, you know, to go back to what I said in my short answer at the beginning, I think most likely ketogenic therapies are beneficial across the board for any age-related decline in cognitive dysfunction as a result of their ability to bypass the need for astrocyte lactate generation to fuel neurons. Although ketogenic treatments have shown benefit with established cognitive impairment, they haven't been tested to prevent mild cognitive impairment in healthy people. So I believe preventative strategies should focus on nutrients required for antioxidant support and energy metabolism, maintaining aerobic fitness with frequent zone two cardio training, and maintaining metabolic health through good nutrition and a robust fasting feeding cycle. I note that I didn't really answer John's second question, which is, are the products of glucose metabolism and keto metabolism more or less toxic in the brain with age? I don't think that that question has much relevance and it can't really be answered as such because the most toxic byproducts of energy metabolism are the same across ketones and glucose. So for example, I did my doctoral dissertation in methylglyoxal, which is the principal uh, quantitatively important form, uh, former of advanced glycation end products. And it's a byproduct of glycolysis and it's a byproduct of ketone metabolism and it's a byproduct of the amino acid threonine metabolism. So it comes from protein, fat, and carbohydrate. You know, so that just it's not true that there are different. I'm not saying there are no difference in the toxic byproducts, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's where our minds should be focused when trying to think about how to maintain healthy energy metabolism in the brain. All right, thank you, John, for your question. This is a clip from a live Q and A session open to CMJ MasterPass members. In addition to this episode you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member, by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.